We all know what it's like when people oppose our good intentions or try to wreck our rebuilding plans. Sometimes it's well-meaning. Go ahead, have a piece of dessert. I made it just for you. There goes the diet. Sometimes the opposition is sinister. Go ahead, have a drink. Just one won't hurt you. There goes sobriety. Well, how can we deal with opposition when we're trying to rebuild after our life has fallen apart in some way? We'll dig into that today on Groundwork. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Best. And Scott, now this is the third program in a series that we're calling Now What? Rebuilding When Life Falls Apart, which could refer to any number of disasters or incidents or setbacks uh, or even just life changes. And we're doing this, Scott, by looking at the books and the story of Ezra and Nehemiah and those two characters in particular. A lot of time uh, has actually passed. Uh, the, the first exiles uh, started heading back to Israel around the year 538 B.C., and we're now quite a few years after that. We're getting down toward 459 uh, B.C. The work, as we saw in the last program, Dave, it was an answer to prayer that the people were able to return to Israel at all. But despite that answered prayer, not all the other prayers were answered as quickly. Things didn't go smoothly. There was opposition. There were setbacks. Eventually, that same Artaxerxes who sends Ezra and Nehemiah turns against Israel and tries to stop the work altogether. So it's tough. Very tough. And, you know, here's another interesting perspective, I think, on this whole story. The events that we're talking about, especially the ones we're focusing on in this program, happened in the 5th century before Christ, that is to say the 400s. Right. And on the stage of world history, huge things were happening, secular history that is. So the Persian Empire is kind of at its height, and we've talked about people like Xerxes and Artaxerxes, and they had armies a million strong and, and uh, invaded Greece. And incidentally, speaking of Greece, this is the century of the flowering of ancient Greece, the rise of the great philosophers, and uh, the height of uh, Greek power and influence. And meanwhile, the Bible ignores almost all of that and focuses on things that are happening in a little broken-down city called Jerusalem in a tiny corner of the Persian Empire that nobody else cared about. But God's history, God's story, isn't great in worldly terms. It's achieving what he wants to happen in the course of human events. Reminds you of Luke 2, Dave, in the classic Christmas story where Luke tells us, you know, about all the Roman higher-ups, and there's Augustus, and there's Quirinius, and you got all these big officials of the Roman Empire. And then Luke says, meanwhile, in this little tiny town named yeah, Bethlehem, a right. baby gets born, yeah. and guess what? He's pretty important. And guess what, yeah. So we want to pick up Nehemiah's story. We saw in uh, the very first program where we at least introduced uh, him and his background in chapter one, he gets this message that things aren't so great in Jerusalem. The walls are still broken down. He weeps. He confesses sin and the sins of the people of Israel, which is interesting. And then he goes to the king, and on his way in, he throws up this quick prayer, Lord, give me success, because he's going to ask for a leave of absence. And Nehemiah is a very important official. And uh, you think of the story of Esther, you know, trembling as she approaches, because if the king doesn't extend his scepter, 
she's done for. So th- this is no small thing. And Nehemiah goes in, and the king is gracious. Yeah, you go ahead and gives him everything he needs. So then we pick up the story of Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 2. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went through the valley gate toward the Jackal Well and the Dung Gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem which had been broken down and its gates which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there wasn't enough room for my mount, my horse, to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. And then he says to the leaders of the city, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. So, interestingly, the very first thing he does, even before he turns in after a long, grueling journey, he goes out at night on his horse, and he kind of surveys right. the condition of the walls. And if we think, Dave, how much longer this is after the first Israelites returned, about 70 years, and, you know, it's the descriptions Nehemiah has here of Jerusalem. We remind you of what we saw at Ground Zero in New York City after 9-11, after the, the, the World Trade Center collapsed. They called it the pile because it was just piles and piles of debris. There's so much debris in some places of Jerusalem, you can't get his horse to squeeze right. through. Yeah. So he has to get off and kind of lead the horse by hand. But I think it's really significant that he stops to take stock of the situation before he jumped. You know, you... You might expect him to say, well, you know, I, I traveled a long way to here. Let, let's get going. No, first, he very carefully does this personal reconnaissance. I was just reading a book, Scott, about the development of GPS, and all of us probably use it nowadays in our phones or in our cars. It, it's the global positioning satellites that enable us to find a route, you know, to wherever we right. want to go. But actually, when they first invented it, it wasn't so much to find the way to where you wanted to go. It it started out by identifying where you were because you can't figure out where you need to go unless you know where you are. And that's the kind of thing I think Nehemiah is doing here. Well, and you know, you think that uh, Nehemiah surveys the city and then he says to everybody, this place is a wreck. This is a mess. This is terrible. And you say, well, yeah, duh. I mean, uh, the city was destroyed by fire in 586 BC. What, what did you expect to find? But I think, again, Dave, this is 70 years after they started streaming back to Israel. Could it be that the people were getting used to the wreck? Mm. Could it be that they were just getting used to Jerusalem being a shambles? I mean, you can get used to anything. Were they getting complacent? Why had nobody started to clean up the pile? Uh, why was nobody picking up the rubble? So maybe it took a Nehemiah to say, hello, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is not God's blueprint for Israel. Uh, if I need to point out the obvious to you to convince you we got to get started, that's what I'm going to do. I think it's easy for us, really, to become accustomed and to think, well, nothing can be done. You know, it's always been like this. This is who I am. Uh, this is my circumstance now. I can't really change. And as you say, Scott, a Nehemiah needs to come along or somebody needs to open our eyes and say, no, it doesn't have to be this way. There's something we can do. Come, let us rebuild. He invites them to join him. He doesn't say, no, you go do it. Nehemiah is the leader. He's got the authority of the king. Uh, he's going to take over the government of the city, but he says, let us, let's do this together. 
And then he does something else that's interesting right at the end. He encourages them by sharing his testimony. He says to them, I told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. He's saying to them, look, God has already started here. He's given me favor with the king, so let's get going and do this ourselves." But scarcely had they started when more trouble arose, and we'll turn to that next. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. Nehemiah 2, Dave, uh, ends uh, with uh, Nehemiah stating the obvious. This is a wreck. Uh, This city's been this way for 70 years since we first started coming back. Why isn't anybody cleaning it up? You know, as you were talking, Dave, near the end of that last segment, I thought, What Nehemiah does for the people is sort of what a good therapist or counselor or pastor sometimes can do for you when they look you straight in the eye and say, you do realize that the way you've been living isn't normal. This isn't right. you got to change. And sometimes it's a grace to be told the truth that we need to change course here. Nehemiah says, you guys have been living with this complete train wreck of a city for the better part of a century. It's time to go. And so Nehemiah 2 ends with, so they began this good work. Yeah, and it was a good work, and uh, you can change, and things can be addressed. And so he he encourages them by saying, let's do this together. Let's work on this together. Again, I like your your application, Scott, a good counselor or therapist or pastor. They don't say, you go do this necessarily all the time. They say, let's work on this together. So that's how Nehemiah begins. And it was an important work. Uh, Incidentally, in the ancient world, the difference between a a city and a town wasn't just the size. It was whether one had a wall or not. A city was walled. It wasn't decorative. Uh, Right. It was very necessary for defense. It kind of defined a community. And in the case of Jerusalem, the walls had symbolic meaning too. I mean, they, they reflected on the character and the the glory of God. So there's a wonderful verse in Isaiah that says, you shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. Mm-hmm. So Jerusalem, the physical city, stood for uh, God's work with his people, and it was a praise to him when the city was right. And that image will endure in Scripture, of course, Dave, because in the book of Revelation, it's the new Jerusalem yeah. which comes down. And the walls are, are uh, made of precious stones, yep. and the gates are pearls, yeah. Yep. So the work begins, but if the people had been sitting around for 70 years not doing the work, maybe one of the reasons was because they had this sense that if they start to do this, there's going to be some people who oppose them. And sure enough, we get to Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah 4. The work begins. Everybody's pitching in to clean up Jerusalem, maybe to get these walls back in shape and the gates rehung and and so forth. But 
Then we hear when Sanballat, and this is a, a local official from a different nation, when Sanballat heard they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? And Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing on it could break down their wall of stones. And then we get the line, Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Indeed, they're being made fun of. They're being poked fun of by these other people who don't want to see Israel rise. You call that a wall? (laughs) But now we're giving names to the people. If you uh, listen to the last program, we introduced this opposition party and they tended to be uh, from Samaria, Samaritans. They're called here, in fact, and now their leaders are named Sanballat and Tobiah. But they're people who are kind of now vying as rivals with the returnees in Jerusalem, and they don't want to see Jerusalem become strong, and they don't want to see the Jewish nation prosper. Uh, And this is an enmity that will be carried out even into Jesus' time, Uh, when Jesus would address it, actually, by pointing out in various ways the value of the Samaritans by engaging them. You think of the story of the Samaritan woman at the well or the parable of the good Samaritan. So Jesus is going to try to counteract this prejudice, which has its roots in the conflict we're seeing here. Right. So they make fun of them. Uh, Ha, ha, ha. Uh, You know, if I sneezed hard, I could knock down your wall. Uh, A little kitten, a fox, could climb on that wall. The problem is, though, that people didn't give up. And eventually the walls start to look like, well, real walls. And so these people, Sanballat and Tobiah, they're, uh, they see the gaps are actually being repaired. It's starting to look like a wall again. So then we read uh, in Nehemiah, they plotted together to come fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But then Nehemiah writes, but we pray to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So they didn't just pray, Dave. They said, you know... Ora et labora, that old phrase, work and pray, pray and work. So let's pray for God to protect us, and then let's take some steps to be protected. Yeah, and I think that's a very significant detail in the story of Nehemiah. If there's one sort of lesson, if you want to call it a lesson, that emerges from the example of Nehemiah, what a great leader he was, and uh, the, the steps that he took, you could probably write a leadership manual. In fact, probably somebody has written a leadership manual based on uh, Nehemiah's actions. But here, there is no dichotomy between relying on God and taking very human measures. So as we read on in the chapter, and for the interest of time, we'll skip some of the, the next verses, but what he does is actually arm the people. And he tells them now, okay, pick up your swords, pick up your spears. Eventually, in the story, he's having half the people work on the wall and the other half are standing guard because they keep hearing you're going to be attacked and these enemies are going to come and roll over you and they're going to kill you, frankly. That's how they'll stop the wall. And so Nehemiah sees no conflict between faith and works, as you said, ora et labora, pray and work, uh, the old Latin motto of the monks. And he takes these very real practical steps so that the work will go on. It's a good reminder, Dave, that indeed, as uh, you just said, we, we tend to like to think in polarities or make dichotomies uh, in our life, right? We like to think, well, uh, God will take care of us. 
God will take care of us, right? It's the old the old story, right? Uh, the man who's got a hurricane going on and the floodwaters are rising and he prays to God, protect me. He has to move up to a second floor because it's flooding. Pray, please protect me. He ends up on the roof uh, and then a boat comes by to rescue him, but he says, no, God's going to protect me. A helicopter comes by to rescue him. No, God's going to protect me. And of course, then he dies and gets to heaven and says, why didn't you protect me? And God said, yeah, I sent you a boat and a helicopter. Yeah, right. What more do you want? Jump on board. <laughs> so we don't want to draw that uh, distinction between um, faith and, and work. It, it can be both. Uh, Nehemiah said in verse 20 of this chapter, our God will fight for us. But that didn't keep him from saying, so few of you, would you please pick up a sword? You know, kind of uh, switch off with the um, trowel for the mortar, yeah. uh, the bricks. And uh, uh, so trusting God and working and, and cooperating with God and with God's spirit, those are not opposite things, and they're certainly not mutually exclusive. And human effort, right, and human precautions. I mean, common sense precautions. That's very practical wisdom we see here. Uh, but And there are some more stories uh, later on in Nehemiah um, about uh, more attempts to kind of lure him away from the work, and he resists that. So he kind of stays the course, and the people keep working, and they finish the walls, and there's a great outcry of joy, and they have this big celebration on the walls with all kinds of musicians and and all that thing, which is great. You know, we need to do that too, celebrate victories. But there is one other serious problem which will arise, and it's a problem within, a problem in the community inside the city and uh, people of, of Judea. And we'll look at that before we wrap this program up. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged at FamilyFire.com. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork and this third program in a four-part series on the story of rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple as we read it in Ezra and Nehemiah. And Dave, in this program, uh, we've been sticking with Nehemiah, and we've just seen that they persevered through some hard times. They took seriously a military threat from some people living up near Samaria, led by somebody named Sanballat and Tobiah, and they made actual progress on rebuilding Jerusalem. But as the uh, famous cartoon of Pogo uh, said years ago, Dave, we have met the enemy and he is us. Yeah. Because as we move on into Nehemiah chapter 5 now, uh, we find out that some of Israel's biggest problems are squabbles from within. Squabbles that arise out of injustice, economic inequality, very modern sounding problems. So we'll get right to the story and read this. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And though we're of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have had to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Economic problems are causing disruption, and some of the 
of, of these families, of the poor families, are even having to lose their children, sell them into slavery in order to pay their debts. And some of the debts are owed to fellow Jews, yeah. uh, to people who ought to be all on the same team, uh, whether they're rich or they're poor or, or whatever. We're seeing a little bit of what has happened all through history, unfortunately, uh, a little class warfare. We're also seeing something that led to problems for Israel before the Babylonian exile when they were not taking care of the poor, as the book of Leviticus demanded. And so you got the prophets of people like Amos, right, who excoriated Israel for uh, mistreating the poor and not following the Levitical laws for leaving, you know, grain in your fields for the poor to glean. There was rampant injustice before the exile, and that's part of why they went into exile. Now they're back, and some of the same issues unfortunately, are coming up. It is significant. We won't be able to cover all of Nehemiah, either in this program or the final one coming up. But Nehemiah will do a lot to uh, make reforms, to make sure the poor are, are cared for. But at this point, Israel is kind of tearing itself apart from within. Yeah. And it turns out what's happening is that the rich are charging interest on the money that the poor borrowed. There, there weren't any banks, so they had no recourse if they had to have food to survive and they needed to borrow money, they, they turned to their neighbors who were, well, better off, and, and those same people turned around and charged interest, which doesn't sound like a big deal to us. We do it all the time. But the Old Testament law forbade that. They said, if you lend to your fellow Jew in need, you must not charge him interest. And when Nehemiah hears this, He's upset, and uh, so we read, uh, carrying on in Nehemiah 5, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them their fields and vineyards. The people kind of respond, okay, we will do that. You know, you kind of caught us and we confess. So there's there's a real challenge here and a response. Right. It uh, reminds me of the story, Dave, of uh, Millard Fuller. Uh, Millard Fuller was a millionaire. He was an extremely successful businessman, but got to a crossroads in his life where he felt empty and he wanted to do something to help people. And so, as some of our listeners know, Millard Fuller founded what is now known as Habitat for Humanity. And he said he was going to follow more of a biblical economics. It's not that the people that they would build houses for wouldn't have any investment in it. That There was what he called sweat equity, where they had to help rebuild it. But he said, you know, you can get a house, no money down, and you will be paying a mortgage, but there'll be no interest on yeah. it so that those who, uh, sort of the working poor, could actually afford a house. And that's sort of what God's design for Israel was as well, to sort of say, let's help each other out. It's not like you can't give loans. It's not like, you know, uh, we want people not to be involved, but we want it to be fair. Anyway, what you see going on here is Nehemiah's attempt to make Israel just fair as God's law demanded. Right. I, it's not an indictment of capitalism. I mean, <laughs> this is a very complicated issue, and uh, modern capitalist societies and uh, investing and all the rest, that's not what's at issue here. What it is is really having a concern for the poor and people who are being crushed by burdens of debt and not making it worse for them. So it's a more personal relationship uh, kind of issue that Nehemiah raises and challenges the people on. And I think the message for us is we need to be concerned and uh, to be willing to help and not only, 
not always look for a profit, you know, in the way we, we deal with other people. Right. And Nehemiah also knew that the people were getting discouraged by all this. So he had to find a way to encourage them. He had to find a way to keep people doing the work. They still faced many external challenges, so they couldn't afford to fall apart on the inside. So he helps to kind of right the ship here a little bit and keep the people unified so the work uh, does get done. You know, it it reminds you, Dave, of uh, quality in the New Testament that's often praised by, like the Apostle Paul, that's endurance, right? Let's not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart, Paul says in Galatians 6. And thankfully, the people didn't lose heart. And that's the good news part of Nehemiah, that they stayed together and they got the walls rebuilt, thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Dave Bast. We hope you'll join us again next time as we conclude our study of the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the praise that the people give to the Lord for His continued hand in their lives. Connect with us at our website, groundworkonline.com, and share what Groundwork means to you or what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit ReframeMinistries.org for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacobs.